take out your copy of God's Word. If you need one, we have some copies on the back table. Uh, please take that. Open up to ch- Psalm chapter 139. Psalms 139, and we're going to read the whole chapter this morning. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, the night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious attempt, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Bow with me in prayer. God, your word is more precious than fine gold, sweeter than purest honey. As we turn now to your scripture, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and with grace so the good news of your personal love, care, and provision for us would shine before our eyes and delight our senses. So we cannot help but respond with wonder worship, faith, and trust. Lord, help me now to proclaim your truth so we may know you better. 
In Christ's holy name, amen. Well, I see a lot of uh, new faces, and I know there's some folks from Reform Heritage this morning, so we are so good that you all uh, could join us this morning. Uh, my name is Zachary Henry. I'm one of the lay elders here, and um, the elders are giving uh, Ryan a much-deserved and much-needed break uh, sabbatical over the summer, and I am uh, honored to come and uh, bring the word to you all this morning. As Tim just read, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 139. So let's begin. I just kind of want to start with a phrase. Maybe you've heard this before. You are what you eat. Y'all heard that before? I know my mom growing up uh, as a teenager trying to shove every piece of food I could find into my growing body would uh, frequently reprimand me for eating too much junk food. I know that my wife says that my kids, uh, our kids, are strawberries, apples, bananas, and goldfish. And probably in that order. Uh, But there's truth, right, to that, what we physically eat. Uh, provides the fuel uh, to help sustain our bodies, right? Uh, we see lots of articles about diets and things like that from athletes to movie stars to uh, fitness gurus uh, talking about how what we eat uh, tunes our body so that we're healthier, we're stronger, we're faster. Good in, good out. But I think this is not true just for our physical bodies. This is also true for our spiritual bodies, our spiritual lives. Our spiritual diet affects how strong or weak our spiritual lives are day in and day out. And while studying, uh, I came across a very insightful quote from uh, A.W. Tozer from the Knowledge of the Holy that I want to start with here this morning. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend to be a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. So in other words, our conception or our understanding of who God is and what God is will dictate to us how we live our daily lives. As we're reflecting even just this morning on the holiness of God, our aspect of holiness, how we pray to God, will determine how we interact with God on a daily basis. So this morning when you hear the word God or you think about who God is, what are some of the first things to come to mind? Eternal or mythical? Is he mean or loving? Is he wrathful or gracious? Is he a father or a tyrant? Is your God a big, powerful God you run to each and every day? Or is he a little God that you bring out of the box every Sunday? Or maybe when you need help, you call out to him, but you really don't need him during the rest of the week. Is your God intimate and personal? Or is your God distant and far away? How would you describe God this morning? Brothers and sisters, as we approach Psalm 139 this morning, I want each of you to see God rightly as God describes himself through the psalmist. If our thoughts about God are the crux and the guide for how we live our daily lives, we must strive to constantly have a right understanding of who God is. 
our spiritual compass must be pointed to true north. Whatever your perception of God is this morning, I want you to open your eyes, your mind, your heart, so that we all have the same view as the psalmist here this morning. As Tim mentioned, if you were here this morning and you don't have a Bible, please either open up your phone. We have some Bibles in the back. I would love to have everybody have the scriptures in front of them this morning. As we look at Psalm 139, uh, some, of the, some of the Bibles and different translations have it broken out a little bit differently. Uh, but primarily, uh, Psalm 139 is broken out into four stanzas. Those first section, verses 1 through 6, God knows you. Verses 7 through 12, God is near you. Verses 13 to 18, God created you. And for the sake of my outline this morning, I've broken up the second stanza into God's vengeance on the wicked and God's mercy on the godly. So let's now turn our gaze on this first set of stanzas here, verses 1 through 6. God knows you. David opens up the psalm, O Lord, you have searched me and have known me. When you or I search for something, it is generally because we lack knowledge of what we're searching for. When I go searching for my lost keys, it is not because I love going on a scavenger hunt across my house, ransacking my house, trying to find my keys. It's because I don't know where they are. Or, in sometimes the case, my kids have moved them, and I don't know where they are. But my knowledge is incomplete. But when God here is saying that he is searching for us, or searching us, it is not because he does not know something. So look at verse 16. In your eyes, or your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So why would I say that God is not searching for us as if he needed something or was lacking something? God has known us before we even were. There was never a time when God did not know us. This is referred to as God's omniscience or God's all-knowing. Thus, when God is searching us here in verse 1, uh, he's talking about a, a thorough examination. He's examining us. And the searching and this examination leads to him knowing us. This idea of know here is an intimate know. It is a deep knowledge of who you are at your core. There is nothing hidden from God here in this verse. God has investigated David and thus knows everything there is to know about David the psalmist. And then David goes on to describe some of the ways that God knows him. The beginning of verse 2, you know when I sit down and when I rise up. So God knows everything the psalmist does, whether he's sitting up, getting up, whether he's resting, watching something, uh, doing something on his phone. When you rise up, when you work, when you play, when you travel, God knows what he's doing at all times. We say, well, maybe that's not very impressive. If I followed you around all day, I could keep track of everything you do too, right? But the psalmist says it goes another layer deeper. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. No matter how hard I try, I do not know what each one of you here is, this morning is thinking. But God does. Before we take any actions, God knows what you're thinking. And even more than your invisible thoughts, God knows the motivations behind every single one of your actions. He knows those thoughts that flitter through your mind and are gone in a second. And he knows your deepest, heartfelt longings and desires upon which we dwell and we mull over and dwell on. 
God looks deep into our souls and knows our very thoughts. Verse 3, he goes on, You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. God knows everywhere you and I go. Whether it's the path, whether it's lying down, the path refers to the public places we go, maybe during the day. The lying down refers to resting, what we might be doing at night. Regardless, there is nowhere we can go without God knowing about it. And this is not just where we go physically. He knows when we're coming to church, but he knows where we go digitally. Something that the uh, psalmist David would never have even thought about. But the Lord knows where we go digitally as well. The Lord is intimately equated with all of my ways. Nothing is concealed from God here. Verse 4 kind of repeats the end of verse 2. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. He knows what we're going to say even before we say it. Note here there's a negative phrase, even before a word is on my tongue. This is a poetic way of emphasizing God's omniscience, his all-knowing. He knows what I'm going to say in five minutes, even if I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. Hopefully I have an idea so I can look at my notes and try to figure out what I might say in five minutes, but I really don't know what I'm actually going to say in five minutes. But God knows exactly what I'm going to say in five minutes. At the end of this verse, uh, the psalmist emphasizes this with the word all together. There's nothing that, uh, that David can say or think that the Lord does not know. So God knows who I am. God knows what I do. God knows what I think. God knows where I go. He knows what I'm going to say even before I do. And then David kind of encompasses all together there in verse 5. You hem me in, behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. The idea of hem in is to surround. We've already talked about all the ways that God knows us, but there is literally nowhere that the, the David can go without God knowing. God is behind us. He is before us, scouting out. He is flanking our left. He is protecting us on the right. Nothing can get to us without getting through God first. And under his watch, there is nothing we can do to outsmart or outmaneuver God so we can get away from his hemming in, his being with us. And this hand that is on the psalmist is not a hand of oppression, but rather of care and of guidance of provision. Within his care and observation, there is no need, there is no desire for which God is not keenly aware. The symbolism of the hand is of a God that is close, that is near. He is walking along with us. He is comforting us. He is caring for us. And what is the response of the psalmist here, knowing all this? God God knows who I am. He knows where I do where I'm going, what I say, there in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. I tried to wrap my head around how much information this is. And trust me, it'll make your head hurt. We cannot even begin to fully fathom and understand God's depth of his knowledge of us. It is incomprehensible, overwhelming, astounding, beyond our imaginations. 
keep piling on adjectives. You cannot outdo this. You cannot overdo it. God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can never dream of understanding. We don't have the capacity to know and to recall all of this information. We are limited. God is limitless. There is no hard drive that God is going to overrun. There is no filing cabinet that is going to go beyond capacity. God's omniscience is not bound by our sense of time or capacity. So do we have any hope at all of concealing anything before this God? No, not at all. It is folly to think that we can sneak anything, something past this all-knowing God. He knows who I am, what I do, what I think, where I go, what I need. He knows me better than I know myself. He knows you better than you know yourself. His knowledge of you is complete and is full. Before we move on, I want to I pause here for two observations. Uh, just take a second there and look at those first six verses and count out how many times the psalmist used the words me, my, and I while I get a sip of water. Go ahead, shout it out. Who's, who counted fastest? Make this a little interactive. Go ahead. Didn't think I was actually going to call on you, huh? Eight? Twelve? Thirteen? Fourteen? Yeah, so that's really cool. We got different uh, translations. I probably know what translations everyone's using based on your numbers. Um, yeah, so I counted 13 in my version of the ESV. All right, so 13 times the psalmist there in the first six verses uses the word me, my, and I. So what's the point of this, right? The psalmist could easily have said, God knows everything, right? You could just say, God knows everything. That would include what we would think and do and go and stuff like that. But that's a very abstract concept, right? Just God knows everything. While it's true, the psalmist decided to make this very personal. God knows me. God knows my thoughts. He knows me. He knows you. And he knows you intimately. He knows my ins and outs, my likes, my dislikes, my habits, my hobbies, my weaknesses, my sins, my longings, my struggles. God knows everything about me. God knows everything there is to know about you. One of the commentators I was reading uh, pointed out that the false gods of the ancient Near East at this point, uh, none of them would have been personal gods. Even throughout history, you look at a lot of the false gods that men have created to worship, uh, to esteem. Very few, almost none, are actually personal gods who care and want to know you. I think David here, especially in contrast to the gods of his time, that the, uh, false, uh, that the other nations would have been worshiping, I think David is intentionally calling out the intimate and personal relationship that we can have with God here in Psalm 139. God is the one who initiated this relationship with us. As we'll see later in verses 13, we had nothing to do with our own creation. God was there from the beginning of our lives. He was the one who initiated this personal relationship. He knows us. He loves us. He cares for us. And this care and love is cause for us to worship this true and personal God who knows you. He is unlike any other God 
or any other thing in this entire world. God is thinking about you, not just periodically, not just weekly, but he is thinking about you constantly. He knows what you're thinking now. He knows what you're thinking about in 30 seconds, tomorrow, a year from now. What a delight it is to know that the God of the universe, who is withholding and sustaining this entire universe, cares enough about you to know what you are thinking and know you personally. The second thing I want to point out here after this section is uh, the psalmist's inclination here is to praise God for all of this knowledge that he has about him. This knowledge is comforting. It's encouraging to him. Because despite all of the sin and all the rebellion that God knows that we have in our hearts and our mind, God still loves each one of us. And he cares for and guides David despite all of his failings. David here shows no concern or worry that God knows his deepest, darkest thoughts. For those who this morning are reconciled to God through faith, God's knowledge of us can also be a comfort. As Psalms 86 says, for he has, dealt with us, he has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. God intimately knows everything about you personally, and he still loves you personally. What a comfort this is. It should arouse affection and love for a God who loves us despite our failings. He knows us. He knows you. As amazing as God's omniscience is, David then goes on to express uh, and explain God's omniscience. It is God's being everywhere. The second point then is God is near us. Look at verse 7. Actually, one note before I read verse 7. Uh, for this next section of verses, there's essentially two different ways that, that uh, commentators and um, history, uh, Christians throughout history have uh, looked at these verses. Um, there is a literal, kind of more straightforward way to read these verses. There's also a figurative way. Uh, I'm going to present both this morning uh, so that you are aware of both of them. And I think in this case, we don't need to necessarily make a distinction and trying to figure out exactly what David was thinking because I think both of them are accurate and true and accurately depict uh, God's uh, way of looking and viewing the world. So looking at verse 7, we say that there are uh, two questions. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where, where shall I flee from your presence? And these are kind of rhetorical questions. The psalmist here is not trying to get away from God, maybe like Jonah did. Uh, but rather, this is just a figure of speech he's using. If I were to run away, if I were to try to hide, where can I go? And then he gives us some examples of places he might go. If I ascend to heaven, he says in verse 8, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The little interpretation is spatial. That is, the heavens refer to the skies, and Sheol refers to the ground, the graves, and the earth. There was no space exploration in David's time at this point, uh, so these extremes would have been the limit of their kind of their known world. So he's essentially saying whether I go up to the skies, whether I fly with the birds, or whether I dig with the worms, go to the grave, God is there. In verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. So the wings of the morning, the sun rises in the east, 
And the sea refers to probably the Mediterranean Sea. So if you know where Israel is, they are in the Middle East. To the west of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. And then if you go all the way through the Mediterranean Sea out to the Atlantic, on the other side of Africa. But that kind of area would have been essentially their known world at that time. And so the sea here is referring to the west. So he's essentially saying from the east to the west, whether I go to the east or the west, you are there. I cannot get away. And in verse 10, he says, even though your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. Just like in verse 5, he's portraying God as loving and caring and providing. That's the picture of the hand here. So both God's omniscience and his omnipresence lead back to a careful, personal guiding and caring for us. In verse 11, he continues, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So I remember playing like sardines growing up. There's no better place to hide when you're playing sardines than going and hiding someplace in the dark. It's hard to see in the dark. But you can't hide from God in the dark. Because the dark is as light to God. Light off, light on. God can see you everywhere. He can see everything that happens. Criminals often use dark as a cover for their nefarious acts. It doesn't work for God. God sees everything in the dark. So it's kind of the literal way to interpret these verses, uh, looking at more of a figurative uh, viewpoint. These are kind of like uh, different stages of life. So looking at verse 8, he says, If I ascend to heaven and the Sheol, so heaven would have been eternity, and Sheol would be the place of the dead or the grave. So essentially David is would be saying here, whether it's after I die in the afterlife or in death, God is there. This is an important aspect because in a lot of religions, a lot of other thought, death is essentially what separates us from other things. But David here, even in the Old Testament, is saying, no, death cannot separate me from God. In verses 9, uh, the morning and the sea are metaphors for life. The sun represents new life and vibrancy, warmth, fruitfulness, productiveness, Dwelling in the sea can reference industry, exploration, adventure, as well as, as I think uh, Ryan mentioned this in, in, uh, in our study in Revelation too, sometimes the sea is referenced as chaos or evil, uncertainty. Thus, what the psalmist could be saying here is that God is with us in our day-to-day lives. He is guiding us through life. He is sustaining us. He is upholding us with his right hand. He is caring for us and protecting us and providing for us in our day-to-day efforts. In the verses 11 and 12, rather than dark being read as literal darkness, we could see these as a metaphor for despair or struggle or trials. It could be the unknown future. We don't always see the result. We don't understand why God is putting us through some of the trials we're going through. But to God, who knows everything, the trials are actually a blessing. He is guiding us through these trials. You see here, uh, the psalmist says, the light, uh, though the, light, uh, the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, but the darkness is not dark to you, for darkness is as light with you. 
In God's hands, the trials are not actually darkness, though we may see them that way. We see he's, God sees them as light, as good, not bad. He is working through those trials to sharpen us, to strengthen us. He is with us through the trials. I'm reminded of James 1, where it says that God uses all of the trials and suffering to build endurance and patience. They would be complete, lacking nothing. Regardless of whether we understand these verses more literally, that is, God above, below, east, west, dark or light, or whether we understand it more figuratively at stages of life, eternity, death, daily life, in the trials of life, the conclusion is the same. The all-knowing, ever-present, almighty God is near us. He is near you. Wherever you are, in whatever stage of life you are in, God is near you. There is nowhere we can go to escape God. And knowing that God's guiding hand is near us, even when we feel abandoned, should be a comfort for us this morning. Having walked the valley of the shadow of death, having experienced oppression or opposition from those in the world, having experienced loneliness and despair, having experienced poverty and want, having experienced abuse or neglect, wherever you are in life, God is with you. God is with you the whole way. At no point in your life has God ever abandoned you. There was no way to get away from him. There was no way to hide from him. And there was nothing, neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, things present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that can separate us from the love of God. What a comforting reminder that is. Secondly, knowing that God is near us helps us to turn to him in faith. Wherever we are and whatever stage of life we're at, in the good times and the trials, knowing that God is near us helps us and encourages us to turn to him. This is a good example of how our knowledge of God impacts our practical, Christian, spiritual, day-to-day lives. If God were distant and far away, would you turn to him? Why would you call to somebody who's distant and far off? No, God is near. God is close. You can and should call out to God. So seeing these aspects of God's omnipotent or uh, omnipresence, his omniscience, David turns to a very practical demonstration of how God works in his life. God created David. Look at it with me there in verse 13. He says, For you form my inward parts. You needed me together in my mother's womb. Formed and knitted are just cool words. Uh, the word knitted here is kind of the idea of a tapestry. If you've ever seen a tapestry being made, it looks really pretty on one side. But if you flip it over and look at the back side, what does it look like? It's a mess, right? That's kind of the, the idea here, this word picture. 
that the psalmist is using here. So this knitted, it's the tapestry. It's a beautiful picture of God putting up our DNA, our genes, our organs, our muscles, our sinews, our veins, our hair, our skin. He put it all together just the way he wanted it. He gave you personality. He gave you temperament. He gave you certain skills. He gave you a unique laugh. He gave you unique fingerprints. All of these are unique to you. He knew what he was going to do before he began, even began to form you. God was there at the beginning. And the psalmist can't even stop himself, but he breaks out in praise of God's creation here in verse 14. He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very I have a brother who's a medical doctor and a brother-in-law who's in medical school. And every time I talk with some of them about how God created the human body, I cannot fathom how anybody can look at themselves or other people and conclude that they are a random mathematical formula, or not even a formula, but a random mathematical result that originated from a random pool of mud. Can't fathom it. I was going to list off some amazing facts about the human body, but I'm already going long, so I'm going to cut that out. But if you want some resources, I'm happy to send them to you. I'm just going to mention one. Our body's ability to heal itself is amazing, astounding. Whether you cut yourself, a broken bone, brain injuries, heart injuries, you name it. God created our bodies in amazing fashion. God's creation is amazing. Looking at verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So he's talking about his frames or his bones, his skeleton was plainly visible to God. Again, nothing is hidden here. Your stature, your height, your build, your physique, your appearance, God made you who you are and he intricately wove you together to be who you are. Where is this happening? As verse 13, he says, he specifically says mother's womb there in verse 13. But in 15, he uses several euphemisms. It calls it in secret, in the depths of the earth. These are, this is a private space. I think it goes without saying, but just to make it perfectly clear, there was nobody else in your mother's womb when you were being formed other than God. A little creepy, I don't know, sorry. I just want to make it clear, just in case there's any question. Nobody else was there but God and you. Verse 16, you saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, yet when as yet there were none of them. So here God saw you before you were even formed. But it goes further. Not only was God the one forming you, but he knew all of your days, what all of your days were going to be before you were even born. He calls it here written down in the book or a journal, a commentary, as other translations might have it. Uh, he knows all of your days written down in a book before there was a single day in your life. No one else can see this book but God. No one can change it. You can't change it. I can't change it. You cannot add a day, you can't subtract a day, 
God knows because he's already numbered your days in his book. Everything that you do, that I will do, God already knows. And he is known from time eternal. Before we move on, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that this is one of the strongest evidences from the Bible itself that would support the personhood of the preborn in the womb. Uh, one of the common phrases that pro-abortion activists will say is, I can do with my body whatever I want. But this assumes that the preborn is just another part of her body. Science we have today, and the scriptures themselves confirm this here, that uh, David's use of these pronouns of my form, my body, my substance, clearly distinguishes his body from his mother's body, even in the womb. So David, even without all the science we have today, clearly understood a distinct personhood of himself in, uh, in his mother's womb. We would do well to understand biblically and scientifically why we stand for the preborn, why we protect the preborn. So God knows you. God is near you. God created you. What then is the psalmist's response? In verse 17, again, he praises God. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Your thoughts are precious to me. But how many thoughts you have, God. I cannot count them. When he says they're more than the sand, he doesn't mean drive to the beach and try to count all the pieces of sand and that's how many thoughts God has. No, he's essentially saying, like with Abraham, they're innumerable. You cannot count God's thoughts. God's thoughts encompass our entire lives. And he knows what is best for us, not just today or tomorrow, next month, five years from now, but for eternity. Being able to retain this much information is, is unfathomable to me. Guys, let's be real here. Uh, sometimes it's just hard for us to even manage four or five thoughts at a time, right? Uh, ladies, uh, Sometimes I think you all have a hundred different thoughts running through your heads at the same time. But you know what? That is still not as many as God has running through his mind. He knows the thoughts of everybody here right now this morning, including those of you who are daydreaming just a second ago. So if you weren't paying attention and you're daydreaming, come back to me, hear me. God's complete knowledge of you, his nearness to us is a comfort and a consolation because nothing can happen to us that God does not already know about. Let me say that again. God's complete knowledge of us, his nearness to us, is a comfort and consolation because nothing can happen to us that God does not already know about. It would not be wise or fruitful for us to even try to worry about what we don't know. What's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month? Jesus warns us as well in his Gospels not to be anxious for tomorrow. Ryan mentioned this as well uh, in our previous study of Ecclesiastes. We are to live in the here and the now. Let God deal with what he knows perfectly. We are limited. We do not have perfect knowledge. We are to live, faith in, uh, faith, uh, live in faith day in and day out. And then the end of this section, I am awake, verse uh, 18. I am awake and still with you. This knowledge leads us to delight that the God of the universe is thinking about us even when we are not thinking about him. 
when we're asleep, when we're daydreaming, when we're not thinking about God, God still is thinking about us. He is still there with us. Unfortunately, we know that not everyone acknowledges this God. There are people that conduct their lives as if God does not exist. They act as if God was not present and was not watching them, even though he formed their very being. In verses 19 and 22, we see God's response to those who reject this omniscient, omnipresent, almighty God. Look there at verse 19. The psalmist cries out, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. This section is what's called an imprecatory prayer. It's a big word. It essentially means that the psalmist here is praying to God that God would execute his justice on the wicked. These are men of blood or murderers. These are men who deny God's very existence through their actions, through their, uh, what they do. These are blasphemers who speak against God with malicious intent. These are people that hate God. They oppose everything he stands for, and they stand up and actively rise against him. Now, it should be pointed out, as David is writing this, David is not talking about personal vengeance here. This is divine vengeance. He's calling on God to slay the wicked there in verse 19. David himself is not the means of God's justice being executed. Instead, David is calling out for God to display his justice and his wrath for others to see. This is justice that God has already promised on those who disobey him via the law and the prophets. He is calling for God to be vindicated against those who deny his omniscience. He is asking God to demonstrate his presence to, no, to, uh, to those that deny he exists. He wants God's power to be manifested and displayed to those that deny his authority. In these verses, David is aligning himself with God as he tries to make God's thoughts his own thoughts. Now, you see here the psalmist himself wants to distance himself from the wicked there in verse 19. And he calls for God to be his witness that he hates those who hate God in 21 and 22. David is calling them the Lord's enemies. He loathes those that rise up and stand up against God, and he counts them his enemies because they are God's enemies. This is not typically language that we use a lot, but Jesus himself used some of this language. He references Psalm 69 multiple times uh, in his ministry. Uh, Paul uses Psalm 69 in Romans 11. Paul in Galatians himself uses very strong language to denounce those who preach another gospel. So Galatians 1, 8, and 9. Paul says, if anybody is preaching a different gospel, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. The word there that we commonly use is anathema. It's sometimes in our vernacular today. This is strong language even in the New Testament. Just over here, through the windows, Debated whether I want to say this, but I'm going to say it. 
We have a, we have a so-called church, so-called pastors and preachers over here that are twisting the gospel. They're twisting this gospel in the message of hope, not based on Christ, but in human reason and personal empowerment and meditation. Now, I must confess that I have prayed some of these imprecatory psalms against this so-called church over here across the, across the uh, parking lot. I have asked God to stop this deception that that so-called church would close its doors, that the blaspheming would stop. But while I can pray that God would execute his justice, I can hate what they teach, I can speak out against what they teach, against this false hope, that doesn't mean necessarily that I am the one to then execute God's justice. I am not the one to mete out God's judgment. We can loathe those that hate God, but in the response to the wicked, we are called to love our enemies, Matthew 5. We are to do good to those who persecute us. We as Christians in the church are called to share the good news of the true gospel, the true hope, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. As I was thinking this morning, uh, this is really something I thought about as I was praying through it one more time this morning. I thought of an objection to this that I had not thought about beforehand. Wasn't David a mighty warrior who slayed his thousands upon thousands? How can David pray something like this when he has literally killed men in battle? I don't want to go too far into it, so I'll keep it short. But I think there's a difference between the sword of the government, the civil government, which David would have been the king of. He had a right and a duty to protect his people from the enemies who were attacking them. Versus God's enemies, God's people. He doesn't necessarily have the ability to judge fully like God can on the final day. Only God can look at your thoughts. Only God can look into your heart. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. I'm going to stop there, but if you have any questions, I'm happy to talk about that some more. That was kind of a last second include. For the godly, then, we see in verses 23 and 24, we see the godly response to this omnipresent, omniscient God. Look with me there at verse 23. He says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Here we see this final point, point five, God's mercy. David has already told us in verse one of this chapter that God has already searched him, that God already knows him. So why is David asking again, God, search me? Well, after David's repudiation of the wicked in verses 20 to 22, his point is he wants to make sure that he is on God's side. He wants to make sure that he is with God, not opposed to God. And as part of that, David cares about the holiness in his own life. So he turns to God and asks him, God, examine me, look at my heart. Reveal every evil that is in my heart so that I may repent, that I may confess, that I may stay in the way everlasting. 
I think partly this as well, this is David's uh, admission that God knows David better than David knows himself. And in order to get to know himself better, who better to ask than God who created him from the very beginning? God has known David since before he was formed. He knew all of David's acts in the book that he wrote for David before David was formed. David says, bring what I don't know about myself to light that I may be purified. Examine my anxious thoughts. This idea of try here is a trial with a judge. Lay out evidence. Let me be weighed against it. Is there any grievous way in me? Now, David knew he wasn't perfect. We know perfectly well from David's life that he was not perfect. David committed some grievous and heinous sins in his life. He isn't being overly self-righteous here and just ignoring and overlooking all of the things he's done in his past. Despite everything being laid bare before God, including his sins and his rebellion against God, he can still say, search me, O God. How? How can somebody with blood on his hands ask God to do something like this? Because he knows that he has been forgiven. His sins have been covered by God. He can confidently approach God and cry out, Search me, O God. For the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. May God's gracious kindness lead us to repentance and his grace assure us to trust in him so that our joyful prayer may also be, Lord, search me. Know my heart. This is a bold prayer. This is a deep, introspective prayer. And I would encourage each one of you to make this prayer a regular part of your prayer life. But a word of caution. I would not pray this prayer without the expectation that God is actually going to reveal something to you. Be prepared to take some action. This is not a prayer we pray to just check off a box on our list. We need to be humble and also concerned for our own holiness. In conclusion then, I want to return to that initial question I asked at the beginning. How would you describe your God this morning? God knows you intimately. God is near you everywhere. God created you. God will avenge himself against the wicked. God is merciful. Going back to that Tozer quote as well, another quote he says, is a right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, that is our, our broader theological framework that we use, but also to practical Christian living. How do each of these aspects of God affect you on a day-to-day basis. I like how Spurgeon put it in one of his sermons. 
we may judge as to our position before God by this test is the thought of his constant observation of us a subject of joy or of dread. If we dread it, surely we have the old spirit of bondage still upon us. But if we rejoice in it, then we may know that we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. If you are here this morning and you are not walking with Christ, with God in faith, in Christ, or you are wandering, you are lost, you are struggling, you are wrestling with sin, God's complete knowledge of everything you do, say, and think should cause you terror. God sees everything you do, and he will punish those who have sinned against him. He does not just overlook sin. The justice and wrath of God against those that oppose him is real. It is thorough. It is complete. Do not be among the wicked that the Lord slays. I would implore you this morning to cry out to God for his mercy. It is great. It is abounding. The Lord's kindness to you should drive you to repentance. If you have any questions, I would love to talk to you more after the service. I want this passage to be a passage of comfort and reassurance for everybody in this room. We should not be dreading our Heavenly Father. Christians, brothers and sisters, again, I want each of you to read this, to be able to worship with a psalmist. We should not be living in dread of our Heavenly Father. We should be worshiping God. We should be encouraged by it. As I mentioned earlier, God's knowledge and nearness should be a source of encouragement, should be driving us to him in faith, not driving us away from him. David wrote this about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. But he had faith in the coming Messiah, that he would be reconciled to him, that he would be reconciled to God. We look back 2,000 years to when Christ died on a cross, appeasing God's wrath and making us a child of God. Say that again, a child of God. You do not need to be afraid of our Father. God knows you. God is near you. God has created you. Just let that sink in for a moment. He knows you. He is near you. God has created you. He is a personal God who cares and guides and protects you because you are his adopted child. This understanding of God should drive us to delight to worship him, to love him, to serve him, for he has rescued and saved you. A right understanding of God is critical to our day-to-day lives. And having an incorrect conception of God will lead us to errors throughout our lives. May we always orient our understanding of God to how God describes himself in his word. May God's gracious kindness lead us to repentance and his grace assure us to trust in him so that our joyful prayer may echo the psalm. Search me, God. Lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray.
Lord, you have searched me, and you know me. You know who I am. You know what I do. You know where I go. You know what I think. You know what I long for. You know what I'm going to say. Lord, you are near me always. In the heavens, in death, east, west, amidst the darkest trials. Lord, you formed my inward parts and have knitted my being together. Before any of us lived a single day, you had already written all of our days in your book. Oh, Lord, how majestic you are. How transcendent are your ways. Your knowledge is too wonderful for me. How wonderful are your thoughts. Yet, Lord, you still care for me. You care for each one of us here this morning. Lord, may you work in our lives to bring repentance and mercy to those who are here this morning wrestling with the dread or the terror of what this means for them. May you correct how we view that we may worship you well. Lord, help us to live our lives in such a way that you are glorified. Lord, help us to know this truth that we may worship you. We praise you. Lord, may we be a humble people who pray a bold prayer that you search us and know us intimately. May our attitudes and our motives, our actions, our thoughts be laid bare. And may you lead us in the way everlasting, in the way of the reconciled, reconciled through Christ's work on the cross. Lord, our lives are yours. We belong to you. Search me, O God. Search us and know our hearts.